Hi, Blaine Dowler here. Just wanted to drop in a quick note before the episode proper starts. This episode was originally recorded a little over a year ago. There was an issue with the recording that wasn't discovered until the Saturday before release. In fact, everything in the recording after the plot synopsis had been lost. Thankfully, the guest, Jim Radloff, was happy to step back in and re-record that portion. But you will notice a difference in sound quality at that point, which is a little over 40 minutes in. So that's the reason for it. Now, on with the episode. Welcome to the latest episode of the unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels Countdown podcast, released through Bureau 42. In this podcast series, we discuss and examine the 75 Greatest Marvel stories as chosen by Marvel readers and published by Marvel Comics itself. The countdown continues every Wednesday until June 1st, 2016. And joining me once again is Horizon Labs member Jim Radloff. Welcome back, Jim. Uh, thank you for having me again. One more round. One more round. Welcome to the latest episode of the unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels Countdown podcast, released through Bureau 42. In this series, we discuss and examine the 75 Greatest Marvel stories as chosen by Marvel readers and published by Marvel Comics itself. The countdown continues every Wednesday until June 1st, 2016. And joining us once again is Horizon Labs member Jim Radloff. Welcome back, Jim. Thank you for having me again for one more round. All right. So this week we're looking at entry number 21, Marvel Graphic Novel number 5, better known as the X-Men story God Loves, Man Kills, written by Chris Claremont, penciled by Brent Eric Anderson, colored by Steve Oliff, lettered by Tom Orzachowski, assuming I didn't murder that name, edited by Louise Jones at the time, she later became Louise Simonson Jones, known to many people as Wheezy, associate editor Danny Fingeroff, and editor-in-chief Jim Shooter. The copyright date is 1983, but the Marvel graphic novel line didn't always have cover dates. This was originally published November 30th, 1982, or close to it. A lot of these stories end up on the list because there's some sort of significance to them. First introduction of a character, death of a character, first meeting between so-and-so. This isn't one of those stories. The significance of this story is just that, by and large, the, you know, the X-Men readers consider it really darn good i think it is actually the introduction of striker and the purifiers but part of it is for a while this wasn't even intended to be canon in fact it was years later that they actually set it as canon and decided that it took place between uncanny x-men number 167 and 168 they chose this partially due to the fact that cyclops is on the team and he left the team shortly after 167 and they also had the time-displaced aging of Ilyana Rasputin, uh, later known as Magic. Mm-hmm. And uh, because for a while she's been a very small child, for a while she's been a teenager, I believe she looks in her 20s right now in the comics. Yeah, her age is a little bit fuzzy. Mm-hmm. But, and yeah, this is the first appearance of William Stryker, although his second appearance wasn't until they did a sequel to this story 20 years later in Extreme X-Men. Yep. And uh, one of the fun little things I actually noticed when I was looking up uh, the story behind this is they they have a special thanks to Neil Adams in, in the front. Neil Adams, mm-hmm. if you've never looked up his work, give it a look. It's amazing. He's he's done some very good stuff, especially with a uh, Batman. But originally he was going to write the story, and he did include a bunch of important parts. But one of the significant changes that they made from his version was that they were going to kill Magneto in the story. His death was going to be what sort of pushed the X-Men to go confront Stryker, and instead he discovers, as we see early in the story, he discovers the murdered bodies of two mutant children and decides that he has to do something about the people who did this. Mm -hmm. This is significant. So Magneto plays a big part in it, and his survival, this really starts an era that is significantly different in the comics in terms of Magneto even running the X-Men for a time and being headmaster of the school, which is something that we discussed. So yeah, it's something we discussed in a lot more detail way back when we did the new mutants by Chris Claremont episode. Yep. In fact, uh, I wasn't in that conversation, but I you know thought about the fact that when Magneto actually found the children's bodies i thought back to that series when when doug ramsey was killed because magneto was the adult in charge of the school and he was 
just looking at how he reacted to one of his children being killed was very reminiscent of this. It it was, and we should probably get into a little more of the the plot synopsis as we're we're going through before we talk in great detail about what this does for Magneto. But that is one of the, the I think the stronger elements of a generally strong story is you know what this does for that character who was I mean in one of his I think it was his second appearance in the comics he set himself up as the head of an organization called the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants right at, at no time in the 60s was he really treated as a hero that came about largely around X-Men 150 when we found out the backstory and found out you know about his time in in the internment camps and whatnot and that history so greatly informs this story so this is a case where a seemingly respectable citizen, he's a, a reverend, is kind of, you know, he's the kind of person who would, you know, he, at first he appears fine, but he's really running more like a cult. He is an extremist. And he's managed to figure out how to play to an audience well enough to kind of mask that. It's like people describe Hitler in the 30s in Germany, where by and large the people weren't racist, but you've got a very charismatic leader running your country in some very difficult times who's giving speeches saying, hey, we've got all these problems because of them. And people are looking for a solution to the problem because the times are desperate. This has elements of that. Now, the, the times weren't quite as desperate in the 80s, but you know there was uh, another recession that they were talking about. I don't remember exactly if it was in progress or just still on the horizon when this was published. Not being an American myself and having been born in the late 70s, I'm not totally familiar with the exact details of the American economics from the early 80s. But this charismatic leader has this subversive plan to basically kill all mutants. And mutants are becoming scapegoats. But he's not saying, you know, these mutants have caused this problem directly or caused that problem directly. He's coming from a position of religious extremism. And his attitude is in stark contrast to the title of the story. You know, God loves, man kills. Naming it that, to me tells you which side of the conflict that Chris Claremont and Neil Adams and Brenty Anderson and by and large people at Marvel are on. Stryker is the unqualified, undeniable villain of the piece. He's not a particularly sympathetic villain. When we do get to his backstory, where normally this would be the point where they establish sympathy for him, they take that sympathy away. But I mean, as Jim already mentioned, this starts with a group of people calling themselves the Purifiers who lynch uh, a couple of African-American children. And, right, so they kill them, they put them up on display, and their goal, it states right in the book, the purifiers intended that the bodies be found tomorrow morning, an example for all the school children to see. But Magneto comes and takes them down. turns out that they were killed not because they're African-American, but because they're mutants. And Magneto's intervention, you know, prevents this public display that they were shooting for. Now we see Reverend Stryker has somehow managed to accumulate a lot of information about the X-Men, much of which has not been made public. And he's also got followers. Right? We cut to the, the dance school. So this is in the era where Kitty Pride has not yet called herself Shadowcat. She's outgrown Sprite. She's now calling herself Ariel, which also puts some pretty tight restrictions on the timeline, which Jim was talking about how they plugged it in sooner. And she is attacked or basically picks a fight, starting with a verbal argument that almost leads to a physical fight when she's struck by another student from the dance, you know, because he is spouting all sorts of anti-mutant racist stuff, you know, calls her mutant lover. You know, she says he started it with words, even though she threw the, the first physical assault by knocking him through the window. And after Colossus intervenes and manages to get the guy to clear out, Stevie Hunter, who knows about the X-Men and, and Colossus, are there saying, you know, Shadowcat... That would not have been a fair fight. He doesn't understand the training you've had. You could have seriously hurt that boy. And Shadowcat responds pretty strongly to Stevie, suggesting, well, instead of calling me a mutie lover, what if he called me something else instead? She doesn't specifically say something else. She uses a term that I'm going to choose not to repeat here. In the context of the work, the way Chris Claremont has written it into the script, I wouldn't say it's offensive, right? The context is, he said something that really offended me, what if he said this term instead as an example of something that, you know, Kitty would expect Stevie Hunter to be very offended by? And I gotta admit it works. When I read that speech balloon, I was taken aback. And right then and there, sort of the scale and the direction of the story, we kind of knew it was going to be anti-racism. 
it stepped up a couple of notches right there in much the same way that that terminology did in the color purple. So did you have that the same feeling there, Jim? Uh, what it really struck me as is, um, in, in a lot of books and TV shows, movies and such that I read, yes, they, I, I have seen obscenities and racial epithets a lot of the time, but I, I see that a lot of characters use them and people in real life use them with restraint so that they mean more the less you use them. And Kitty is probably the most restrained member of the X-Men, or at least the most innocent, the, the least offensive. She's, she almost comes off as a Mary Sue a lot of the time because she's stated as being very intelligent, very athletic, very nice. She's open to everybody. She's afraid of Nightcrawler because of his appearance right away, but she gets over that very quickly. She's pretty much as close to a perfect person as you can be in a lot of the early issues that she appears in. And even today, she she just seems like very, very close to perfect. And so seeing her as the one that uses that term and is being so rattled by the the way people are speaking around her has more impact than, say, if Wolverine had heard someone say something offensive and punched them, or if Colossus had. I mean, Colossus is clearly here and just is trying to make sure there is no violence, but or is less violence, but Kitty being the one who's... And she can get away with that because she's younger. She's she's only 14 years old when she joins the X-Men. And it, it just kind of shows that this affects people at all ages, and we all will deal with it in different ways. But she's so young, she doesn't see why this sort of thing would be tolerated. And she doesn't know that she's going to have to deal with it. Yeah, this is very different. As you said, like this, this scene would not work with Wolverine in place. I mean, if Wolverine heard someone use that term, I'm, I'm not sure, depending on which point in Wolverine's evolution, right? For example, if it came up at the time this was published, I don't know if I would expect Wolverine to actually comment to the person who said it. I would expect that person to, you know, suddenly find claw marks or, you know, claw shaped holes in their tires and be unable to drive home, possibly the gas tank. Like, you know, Wolverine wouldn't do anything, but he wouldn't confront him directly. He'd just, you know, kind of find a way to to screw them over in alternative fashion. You know, if it was just Colossus, I think it would have been, okay, let's just walk away, right? He wouldn't stand around and listen to it. You know, he might say, you know, that that's inappropriate. I prefer not to. The person insisted, you know, then walk away. But just Kitty is, as you said, young enough and temperamental enough the reader will still respect her even when she loses her temper. And the fact that she has lost her temper and she's using it this way, it drives home how much impact these sorts of ideas and thoughts are going to have on these characters, which is a huge piece of this story. I think the X-Men in general work best as a piece of social commentary. I mean, they're a decent superhero team, but that's not what brought them together. It's not like the Avengers who first chose to become heroes for the most part and then chose to band together. It's not like the Fantastic Four where, you know, they were explorers and stumbled into the powers and then decided to do good things. There was, there were no choices involved, right? They didn't choose to get on an unshielded spaceship and get irradiated by cosmic rays. They didn't choose to build a suit of armor that they can attack people with. They were just born this way and the X-Men originally formed, you know, in the context of the school to train people how to use their powers and deal with those who are going to try and start the conflicts. They're there has like human mutant relations to try and calm the conflicts and cope with each other and cope with themselves and find a way to live in peace despite of how they were born. And the way, well, I shouldn't say dis- in spite of how they were born, it's in spite of how others treat them because of the way they were born. So. And part of the problem, especially for X-Men, is that, as you mentioned, Stryker shouldn't have had a lot of this information that he has on them, how their powers work, what they do, all that, because for most of their early history, the military kind of knew who the X-Men were and in the first couple of issues got along with them. But the vast majority of what they've done has been in secret. And in fact, the only really public faces of actual mutants have been supervillains or at least former supervillains. Magneto started his career by trying to attack a military base and then he formed the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, as you said, who attack targets and don't really wear masks, but demonstrate their mutant 
powers and identify themselves as mutants, while the X-Men wear masks and hide their abilities as best they can and their identities as best they can. So the public face of mutants are, you know, Magneto, uh, Mastermind, Toad, Blob, bad guys for the most part. And then the only real good guys that the public got to see were reformed villains like the Scarlet Witch, Quicksilver, and for a while, at least at this point it had been for a while, Beast had also been an Avenger, but even his appearance was off-putting to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. A lot of it, it does kind of explain it later. If you have been reading X-Men from the first issue, being because you're, you know, someone who was around when they first started publishing, or you've got reprints on DVDs or whatever, early on they were liaised with the FBI through Agent Fred Duncan. He first appeared in issue number two in November 1963. Issues 38 and 39 had backup stories explaining his connection to the team. He shows up again in issue 46 and then largely disappeared. The next time he showed up in print was X-Men Children of the Atom number one, which again is a you know reprint. Back then there's an issue of the Hidden Years that he shows up in. You know He even shows up in the first X-Men story using Neil Adams, who helped plot this one. So Neil was very familiar with Fred Duncan, but that's ultimately how Stryker gets his information. So I'm okay with him knowing that Professor X is in charge of the X-Men and knowing about the crew of the X-Men at that time. I haven't read The Hidden Years, so I question if Fred Duncan is the source of Stryker's information, how much information should he really have about the current team members? Now, granted, if he's you know, got inroads into the FBI. He might also have inroads into the Canadian agencies and could have gotten information about Wolverine that way. But how should he know this much about Colossus or Shadowcat? Shadowcat is rarely a field member of the team. I, I thought about that too. And one of the things I really realized is the pictures that they use make me kind of wonder because of the, uh, they look like pictures that would be taken from the danger room. But as for how he would have any information on them at all, I think that's basically covered in the first two pages when we actually see the purifiers, because these are heavily armed terrorists. And I use that word not as militants. They're, they're actually armed people who want to kill innocents in order to spread fear. They're, they're literal terrorists and they clearly have military both training and equipment and i had asked myself even before before i asked myself he got that footage or that information about the x-men how he would have had access to these type of people and the answer that i got is he's probably got deep pockets from his ministry and he's and, and deep pockets give you access to a lot of channels that wouldn't necessarily be open to lay people which means he probably has sympathetic people in the government or other similar agencies. Yeah, that's one of the things that has been made clear is that he is, you know, he's been trying to get inroads into a lot of organizations. For all we know, he's got membership in the Hellfire Club, which is not a publicly mutant agency, right? It's just sort of a social elite. It's the kind of thing where members of the Hellfire Club would be people he'd actively recruit for his campaign and his followers. So the only attribution that's given on the page is through Fred Duncan's information, which is why I was going, well, there's not enough information for that. There, there's a lot of things you can imply so that that story problem is not big enough to prevent me from enjoying this story. It's just enough that says, you know, if you wanted to tell another story and fill some of that in, there is definitely room to do so. And another thing is he might actually have political connection. I mean, they show that he at least invites people to very powerful people to see his crusade toward the end when he's actually being confronted by Magneto in the sort of theater area. They've, they've already mentioned the idea of having the president there. And one of the fellows in a suit is starting to cry that this is insane. Stark has gone too far. And the man behind him says, Senator, you're bleeding. What the hell's going on? What is this madman doing or that madman doing? And it's, you realize that the the fellow that's been saying Stryker's going insane is a senator. So he's Stryker doesn't necessarily he knows he hates mutants, but he can't tell mutants from humans. So he might actually be 
in league with politicians, not knowing that some of them, they not even knowing themselves that they might be mutants. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is something that, that comes out here. Well, and even going back to uh, Kitty's conversation with Danny and uh, Stevie, Danny doesn't call her a mutie. He calls her a mutie lover. He doesn't realize that she's a mutant. He thinks she's just sympathetic toward mutants. Mm-hmm. This this isn't like uh, that epithet that Kitty hypothesized or whatever about about Stevie. Uh, you can hide the fact that you're a mutant for some people. Obviously, you need certain tech to do it if you're Nightcrawler or 70s Beast. But but you, you're not going to necessarily hide your feelings about it. Like you know, Kitty. The only thing you really get about her anything really about her other than that that would say she's any different ethnically or or any of that from say Danny is that she's got a star of David around her neck because mm-hmm. she's Jewish and it's been established that she's Jewish and that's actually been a connection sort of a connection or at least a softening that Magneto had toward her a few issues earlier mm-hmm. yeah it's that's one thing with mutants in the Marvel universe they are like you said most of them can just pass as regular people and there's a lot of stuff going on. I mean, following the, the scenes that we've already discussed, the next scene is a televised debate between Professor Charles Xavier and Reverend William Stryker, which I mean, one of the things that's come out in, in televised debates or presidential debates in the United States is that the, you know, the way people present themselves on television can have a huge influence on the audience. In, there was an early debate. I believe it was Nixon was one of the people involved. Was it uh, Nixon and JFK? Where it was the first televised presidential debate or candidate debate b- before the the actual election. When they polled the viewers at home about who won, it was un- almost unanimous that yeah we had a clear winner. But the people in the room chose the other guy to be the clear winner. Right when you're looking at them on TV and one person just physically presents better on television, they had documentation that said yeah that sways the audience. Whereas when you're in a large room up in the bleachers and you just kind of see two vague humanoid shapes and all you can do is listen to the actual content, then those listeners went the other way. And it's also very true if you watch like sporting events or don't mean to be controversial here, but semi-sporting events like uh, the WWE or um, others, uh, sports entertainment, professional wrestling, uh, whatever you want to call it. I've, I haven't been to a show in a while, but I can tell you that it's a very different feel watching it on TV and actually being in there because you, you feel the excitement of the people around you. It's, <laughs> it, it's very different to see something on television than to be live. And as you said, with the debates and with this, as you'll see later with, or as we'll see later with the, uh, theater full of people coming to see Striker's Crusade. Yeah. Yeah. There are. Yeah, there's a, a definite feel to that. And that's one of the things that, that plays to, because every time he's giving one of these speeches, there's someone there in the audience who's calling them out. Even in here, when they're doing the televised debate, the people in the programming booth are going, you know, one guy says, Q camera one. You think Xavier's making a convincing case? And the other guy says, yeah, but who's listening? Stryker knows television, and he's playing to the audience. He comes across as such a nice, personal guy. Too bad, because the man's message is pretty damn scary. Right, so there's people who are recognizing it, but he's still got the majority of the crowd behind him. And it does come across well when they say that, yeah, people seeing Professor Charles Xavier, he's a scarier figure than Reverend Stryker is. Okay, and incidentally, I, I did, uh, while we were talking about this, look it up. Um, you, were, you were right, it was uh, Nixon-Kennedy that the debate was between. Nixon was considered mediocre in the visual medium of television, but people who listened to, on the radio especially thought that Nixon had won. And he very narrowly lost that that election. He lost by about 0.2% of the popular vote. Yeah, so that's not a huge difference in the voting. So had that debate been exclusively radio... The Nixon administration might have started a little bit earlier. Yeah, and wouldn't have had JFK, and that would have actually made a big difference in BBC programming, believe it or not. But that's way off topic. After this, we're also introduced to Stryker's you know, sort of right-hand woman, Annie. We also find out that he's got size screens in case that should prevent Xavier from screening their thoughts, which Stryker says should be a total surprise. One of the things I like about the way this is written is that it's not. If you're used to blocking people's thoughts out and then you don't have to, that should send up a red flag, and it does. So Professor Xavier at one point says, They had something in place that prevented me from reading his thoughts. I don't know why they knew that was necessary. There's something going on with this guy. 
So they are still caught in a surprise attack, and it is effective because it's very well orchestrated, and they were blind to it. But at least the red flags did go up, where, you know, Xavier came out of that that debate going, this guy's a threat beyond ideology. There's something going on with this guy. Uh, Next, we get a danger room sequence, which not only introduces the powers of the X-Men to the unfamiliar, but also shows one of the things that's worked best about the X-Men is their level of teamwork. You go back to the early issues of Fantastic Four, early Avengers, and early X-Men, the X-Men are the ones that were most likely to attack in unison on multiple fronts, whereas the Avengers and the Fantastic Four are more likely to orchestrate taking turns in the proper order. Which, well, to be fair, um, as we mentioned way back in our uh, Avengers number 4 discussion, the X-Men actually have far less of a rotating roster. The, the Avengers went through two roster changes in their first four issues, while the X-Men, in their first 90, I want to say, the only changes were three 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 editions, I want to say, because Mimic came on for a while, mm-hmm. and then Havoc and Polaris were both members. Changeling was there, mm-hmm. but he, he wasn't really a full X-Man, except for the point where he was impersonating Xavier. But in general, mm-hmm. the X-Men were a lot more solid as a as, as a roster. Yeah, that's certainly true. I think, I know Banshee and Sunfire were introduced. I think Sunfire was invited to the team, but turned it down again. He, he tends to do that. I don't think Banshee was invited yet because he was introduced as a villain. Yeah, he was introduced as a villain. He was invited in Giant Size X-Men. Yeah. It was the first time he actually joined. And he was introduced as a, as a villain under duress. They had a, uh, device that was attached to his head that would explode if he didn't do Factor 3's bidding. And it, thanks to Xavier, he was able to remove that device. Yeah. Yeah. So again, we've got some, We've had some sympathetic allies, but yeah, as you mentioned, I think the only team that had a more consistent roster was the Fantastic Four, and that's largely because they were more family. By the time this was published, they'd seen Crystal step in for Sue while she was pregnant and uh, a young mother, or a mother of an infant, and we'd seen Luke Cage step in for a couple of issues when Ben Grimm lost his powers. But I, I don't think we'd seen any other major roster changes prior to this. They were fairly consistent as well. But again, combat wasn't what they were planning. Whereas the X-Men and the Avengers were both, they were both teams that trained for combat, but the Avengers were more individual training. When they trained together, it was more as sparring partners. Whereas the X-Men train on how to look out for each other, how to have each other's backs, and how to coordinate their efforts for more effective attacks. And that's what we're seeing here, right? They Each member is given a, a particular mission to accomplish, each of which is better suited to another team member. So everyone, do, you know, pitches in for someone else and gets the job done. And that training sequence is right before that attack we've already mentioned on Xavier's car, which, you know, ends with the X-Men being notified about the deaths of Professor X, Storm, and Cyclops. Now, at the time this was published, that I could see being a very, you know, it was a very realistic threat. Following Giant Size X-Men number one, the X-Men did go through a fair number of roster changes pretty regularly. Right, we had one of the the new, all new, all different X-Men, one of them dies like three issues into the run? Not even. It was, I think it was either the first or second issue when they got back to X-Men after Giant Size that Thunderbird was killed by Count Nefaria. Yeah, I, if I remember correctly, I was counting, including Giant Size as part of the run. So there's Giant Size and then 93, and I believe it's 94 where Thunderbird doesn't make it. Yeah, that, if I'm remembering the numbers correctly, but yeah, that, he died very early on. We'd seen, you know, by this point, Banshee and other members had quit. Some others had joined. Claremont's idea was, yeah, they're not a superhero team. They just have to train because that's the crap they deal with. And they've got these powers that they didn't even know how to handle. But by and large, they're just a group brought together by circumstance. So they're going to come and go and they should have their own lives. You already mentioned that for a while. Cyclops quits, gets happily married off in Alaska. And for a long time, that was Claremont's plan was to just leave him there. He his. As far as he was concerned, Cyclops' story was done. We'd seen a number of other changes. At this point, we had just barely seen the introduction of the New Mutants as a a new team that came through. So, you know, presenting it as these characters died, you know, when you're talking about the Marvel graphic novel line, where number one was the death of Captain Marvel, issues two and three in this line were not in continuity. Uh, Number four was the next in continuity title, introducing the New Mutants, and then this is number five. 
they're trying to be major events, as we've discussed in previous uh, podcasts about the Marvel graphic novel line. Killing off those three would have been shocking, but not out of the question. And it wouldn't have been uh, too, you know, incredibly surprising considering kind of the spacing of some of the killing off that they did. Because, as I said, this was canonically placed around issue 167. And when you look at how far apart they spaced some of their stories, the, like we said, Thunderbird was killed in the 90s, uh, 93, 94 area. And then, of course, we had the Dark Phoenix Saga, which saw the death of Jean Grey. And that was pausing because I can't remember exactly the issue that she died in. But yeah, I want to say 138. I don't remember off the top of my head either, but 138 was that is the end of the Dark Phoenix Saga, 129 to 138. So 138 would actually be the the Requiem issue and her death would have most likely been 137. So that would have been about 40 issues between the two. So it would have been about 20 issues between her death and these apparent deaths of these characters. Yeah. So, and at, at, and at this point she was dead. She was, she was uncle Ben dead. Yeah. Yeah. This was well before some of the creators at a con had that little chat with a fan named Kurt Busiek. So we've got this, we've got the X-Men coming to investigate and Wolverine realizing, yeah, this isn't them. Like he, he's faked enough deaths himself. He can smell this. This is not them. Let's figure out who it really is and quote, nail the bastards. And this is back to Wolverine's harsher days. This is the days where if someone told you Wolverine's going to be the headmaster of the school and so was Magneto, Magneto would be an easier one to believe. And I mean, ultimately they both became the headmaster, but so the, the X-Men come in and, you know, Colossus effectively stops the car by just taking the engine out while it's running. And then they get a bit of assistance. They're about to be attacked by some armored assailants whose armor removes itself from their bodies and rewraps itself around them in a cocoon. And this is when Magneto comes in and offers himself as an ally, because he recognizes the scale of the threat. So listeners at home may be realizing this is going to be, you know, very comparable to the plot of X2 X-Men United. This was the inspiration for that film. They had a, a different take on Stryker, if anything, it was earlier in Stryker's life. But yeah, Magneto ends up joining the team, and that's the first time that I recall Magneto being treated as an ally. So we've got uh, Magic and Ileana have also been captured at this point after discovering some of the surveillance devices that have been put near the X-Men's property, which again speaks to, you know, how Stryker's gotten his information about them. We see Wolverine's very persuasive interrogation techniques, although they are less persuasive than, less persuasive than Magneto's to the point where Nightcrawler's even asking if we use the same but if we use our foe's methods, my friend, how are we better than they? So even, you know, Nightcrawler recognizes the severity of the situation, but he's not completely, you know, he's not comfortable with it, but not so uncomfortable that he's willing to stop it. We learn that Stryker is essentially mentally torturing Charles Xavier because he's got him weaponized and turned into a tank to make him feel like those he cares about are attacking him to make him fight back. We learn Stryker's history, in which, you know, he had retired from military service. Uh, he, he hadn't retired yet. He was Major Sergeant, or Master Sergeant Stryker. He was still a U.S. Army Ranger. Yeah, right. He didn't retire until after the incident where they were in an accident. His wife went into early labor, and the way he describes it, his child was a monster. So he stabbed his child to death, broke his wife's neck, and then used the car crash to try and kill himself along with them, except he survived. Later realized that his son was a mutant, and was able to move forward with himself by, you know, praying. And the way it is here is, let me just read the exact quotation. After months of torment, I knew what that monster was, a mutant. But could I have fathered such a creature? Was my life so wicked that the Lord sought to punish me through my son? And if so, why then let me live? If I was evil, shouldn't I have been condemned to eternal damnation? I prayed for guidance. It was given to me. The evil, the sin, was Marcy's, not mine. She was the vessel used by God to reveal unto me Satan's most insidious plot against humanity, to corrupt us through our children while they were still in the womb. The Lord created man and woman in his image, blessed with his grace. Mutants broke that sacred mold. They were creations not of God, but of the devil. And I had been chosen to lead the fight against them. So, Stryker is the kind of reverend that gives all of the reverends a bad name, right? He has taken the flimsiest of evidence and decided he's here to rid the world of a scourge. And it, it sets him up as an effective villain. 
he's a villain who will never see himself as the villain. He honestly believes he does the right thing, and there's nothing anyone can say or do to make him change his mind. He is determined, he is intelligent, he is resourceful, and in his mind, he's the hero. As I said, he's one of the scarier heroes. You know, as we continue, we see Kitty Pride manages to make a form of escape, although she is eventually brought in. No. Well, they've got her down and trapped in a subway until Magneto shows up and assists and actually helps the police officer who took a bullet on behalf of Kitty as well. So, which I think is the first time in any issue that we see Magneto helping a human being as opposed to a mutant. And it's also kind of interesting that as she's getting into that situation, uh, she's going through alleys and around buildings and she runs into a group of guys who kind of threaten her and in a way kind of look like the village people. And that these guys are gunned down by the pyramids with no indication that that they're mutants or that they would really stop Annie from killing Kitty. It's just the purifiers murder all of these guys without a real thought. Mm -hmm. Actually, not even just all the purifiers, just her. Because it's between panels, the, the one guy takes out a gun and says, take her, and then the next panel... They're all dead, and one of the purifiers is looking at Annie saying, We heard gunfire, but I guess you didn't need our help. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it really sets up Annie as someone who was very, very committed to Stryker's cause. But we're not sure if that's because she really sees mutants as this level of threat, or if that's because she just enjoys killing and is given targets by working for Stryker in the peacetime. So as we continue, we see more conditioning of Charles Xavier. Right, We see Kitty Pride as Ariel helping out in terms of interrogation and gathering information. She and Nightcrawler together managed to sufficiently terrify the good doctor who's been working on, on Xavier and to release the information that he knows. We see Magneto's involvement as they're interrogating Annie and rescuing uh, Cyclops and Storm, who were believed dead and killed by Xavier, only to discover, well, no, they're not quite there. You know, they're just very close to death. So even subconsciously, Xavier held short of actually killing them, and Magneto is able to use his abilities to resuscitate them. It's kind of interesting how much they make it look like people are are dead in here, and they really should be. Like As we mentioned earlier, they, they stun, I don't think we actually mentioned them stunning Ilyana with a gun that clearly looks like, like a handgun, but even when they took Cyclops and Storm and Professor X in the park, the man they're showing holding a weapon, is clearly carrying an assault rifle, and that does not look like a tranquilizer. No, this it was pretty severe in terms of this. There, there's no holds barred on these. If anything, the only restrictions placed on it were the Comics Code Authority and the decision to keep these marketable characters on the playing field. In, in some ways, I'm actually surprised that all the X-Men survive this story. There's certainly death, but it's, you know, the unnamed kids who get lynched, the the street mob, and some other individuals that we haven't hit in our recap yet, so I'm not going to spoil. Okay. But the whole thing comes to a culmination in what is essentially a political rally. Again, with security guards saying, what do you think, Jeff? The Rangers are playing in the Islanders over in Garden City. I wish it was there. Crowd's eating it up. I don't know, partner. That preacher scares me. So again, we've got people there who are concerned by the message, but he's got enough people on his side that it doesn't work. And one of the speech bubbles here really speaks to me as a, a science teacher. When Reverend Stryker is doing the rally, he says, are we now to let those who put forward the proposition that we are descended from apes tell us that our descendants, our children, will be born monsters and that this is natural? I say no. I say never. We are as God made us. Any deviation from that sacred template, any mutation, comes not from heaven but hell. So again, he's taking the anti-evolution stance here. And this one panel is pretty much the only panel in the whole story that tale deals with that but it lets you know which side he's on and how extreme he is in his interpretation of the sacred texts. Or, in the case of his reaction to mutants, his deliberate misinterpretation of his sacred texts. And then, beyond that, this is when they activate the weaponized Professor Charles Xavier. And it's it's a mental attack on all the mutants in the vicinity. And we do know it's sort of this radio-localized thing. As they get closer to the facility, it's a bigger impact. Right. Nightcrawler's ears start bleeding. We've got people collapsing in the streets. Uh, they're actually able to put down Magneto with this weapon. As you mentioned, we've got the senator here whose ears start bleeding, so the senator didn't seem to realize he was a mutant. And 
as we're going through and coming through it, Annie realizes that she's a mutant. At which point, Reverend Stryker basically writes off his right-hand woman going, Oh, you're one of them? Well, sorry. It's God's will, not mine. And as she's trying to come to him for help, he pushes her off the dais, and she dies when her neck snaps when she falls. So the good Reverend William Stryker kills his right-hand woman in this televised debate. And that actually gives Magneto the opportunity to stand up and be the voice of reason and start calming people down. And it's the police are actually protecting Magneto because of what's going on here. And we get another coordinated assault from the X-Men. So Nightcrawler and Wolverine provide a frontal assault on Charles Xavier that he reacts to, which distracts him enough that he doesn't see Cyclops ricocheting his optic blasts off a few surfaces to sort of give him a blast in the head and knock him unconscious to prevent the attacks from continuing. Cyclops then continues using his optic blast to destroy the mechanisms, and then they decide, okay, we need to end his ideology and not end the man. So they show up on the dais at this rally and continue the debate and do so effectively enough to enrage Stryker, and he pulls a gun on Kitty Pride. at which point he's shot by a police officer. And the crowd response to this is great. Is that cop shot the referend. Another police officer says, yep, who was about to shoot an unarmed little girl. If that's the word of God, it sure changed some since Sunday school. But what about the muties? What about them? They've done as much or as little as you clowns. As far as I'm concerned, they're free to go. And good luck to them, they'll need it. So it's that nice little piece where we're seeing, you know, no, at least the, the police here are presented in a very fair light, in a very good light. They are recognizing the good and evil. They're on the X-Men's side, and they act to protect innocents when they can from those that are threatening them. And we end with a final piece where Professor X is debating whether he can continue as he is, whether he should join Magneto, and Magneto's allowed to leave the X-Mansion in peace. Well, the X-Men try to deal with what's going on and convince Xavier that, no, he still has a place with them. So that is the rather lengthy plot synopsis to this one. Yep. Okay, so with the plot synopsis out of the way, and with us back to record after... The glitch that was mentioned at the start of the podcast, from this point forward, it's the new recording, which is taking place a little over a year after the last one, but we'll get into why that is in a bit. I mean, we should just talk briefly about the significance this has in continuity, which for a long time was minimal, but that has changed. As as we said, it, it wasn't really considered canon for a very long time, and when it became canon, it actually became ridiculously important because the purifiers have been such a major group in the x-men's i don't even know if we should call them their rogues gallery because they're their own you know organization that just kind of stand out and above most of the x-men's other villains and you know they're such a different type of villain because they're one that always seems to somehow be operating in public but also in secret because they so often are, you know, they're a terrorist organization, so they're recruiting new members, but half the time they're doing it as friendly people wanting to make the world better in their own way. And then it turns out, oh, yeah, by the way, you're going to have to be a militant and you're going to have to murder innocents. And, you know, they're so important to so many characters' introductions. I, I remember when I got into New X-Men, or I, I think that's what the title was at the time. It might have been Academy X, but it was the one where they introduced Elixir and Wither and all of those guys. And Elixir started out looking to join that group and didn't even, he had sort of a, the same thing happen to him that happened to Anne, except less lethal with him, where Donald Pierce tried to just demonstrate how quick and powerful he was as a cyborg and cut his hand, I cut uh, Elixir's hand, and he looked at his, his hand, he's like, wow, I could have sworn he, he cut me, but there's no injury. That guy's impressive. And only later does he realize he's a mutant, and these guys will kill him for being a mutant. That happened with a few of them, and that comes back to their first appearance here, where there were so many mutants who didn't know they were mutants, mm-hmm. which I do like. To me, that speaks to the idea that mutation doesn't necessarily give you obvious or combat effective powers that there are a number of very subtle mutants out there you know someone like we had in the school during the grant morrison new x-men era and that you know it sounds like that is part of it he didn't realize he was a mutant until after the fact yeah yeah and the 
the thing is it even changes their ideologies and the, they've done that story a couple times where the member of the purifiers or sympathizer with the purifiers figures out that they're a mutant and leaves because of it because they know they will be killed uh like i said uh Anne did that but she was killed instantly uh elixir did that and became one of the more interesting members of the x-men for the last 15 20 years and anyone who's played the game x-men destiny the infamous x-men destiny one of the three character three original characters that you have the option of playing is named adrian luca and he's a member of the purifiers until he finds out that he's actually a mutant and he has to spend the rest of the game fighting purifiers and wrestling with the fact that his father was a purifier he joined the purifiers partially because his father died you know doing what purifiers do which tends to be murdering people so his father's ghost is in his head telling him to murder people and to be ashamed of what he is and he's trying to come to terms with the fact that he's a mutant and can still be a good person and just doesn't know anything about himself because he's so shaken the one thing that they haven't really done yet that i'd really like to see them do at some point at least they haven't done it in a comic i've seen where someone joins the purifiers finds out their friend is a mutant and then has that shake based on that rather you know the people around elixir still tried to kill him and died right away and so nobody other than the crowd who didn't know her had a chance to react and uh adrian didn't really have any friends in the game but quickly became friends with either the x-men or the brotherhood depending on which group he decides to join i just think that's something that would be interesting to explore in the future mm-hmm. yeah, there's a lot of possibilities to go back and explore things in the future here yeah, and I mean, but aside from that, it hasn't shown up a lot in continuity. I mean, there was a direct sequel in the Extreme X-Men, which is why this graphic novel is included in one of those collections, but that was Chris Claremont's X-Book at the time that the second movie came out. And I think that's probably the place that it's had the biggest significance or impact outside of the comic page is the fact that this story is the source of the major plot lines in X2. The main difference is that the movie striker never became a pastor. He's still involved with the military. Had been involved with Weapon X, but it's a military involvement all the way. So it's a, a different motivation, which, I mean, I, I see why they did it. It, I think, cuts down the social commentary edge when you don't have that runaway pastor, but we'll talk about that in the deeper meanings. But at the same time, that also does mean that the action sequences in your movie can be really stepped up because they're going up against not just a militant organization, but a military organization. Yeah, and the other thing is it helps them with the fact that, you know, part of what's so dangerous about the purifiers is the fact that they're, since they have this fanatical religious devotion to their belief that mutants are evil, you can't reason with them and they'll just keep coming. And you have to reason with everybody around them to stop them from joining rather than fighting these guys direct on. And you have to fight in a reactionary way because if you attack, if you strike first, they're going to say, oh, they have attacked us. We are justified in attacking them back or even wiping them out. So you have to make sure that it's them making the public bad decisions like the the purifier who shot the policeman in the subway and said that and and when kitty says no he's a human and he's dying and the purifier replies that his death which will appear to be at your hands will serve our cause Mm -hmm. or even the final confrontation with striker where the public sees him kill Anne and then hold a gun to a little girl's head yep the the purifiers are effectively the westboro baptist church but with guns instead of Picket signs. And numbers, yeah. And yeah. Ex- ex- except the thing about the Westboro Baptist Church is people just kind of look at them as a small group of idiots that don't really affect anything. They annoy people, to be sure, but they're not actively going out to harm the people that they disparage. The purifiers, they've got one front where they're just talking about how everybody should come with them and join and and oppose these d- 
different people, and then they've got one arm that says, okay, we're actually going to go out and kill these people that are not like us. To me, it's more similar to different religious groups, shall we say, that do still exist today. Yeah. Yeah, it's more of a... Unfortunately, this world is always populated with extremist groups that are deliberately misinterpreting their holy book. Sorry, one of the actual benefits of having done this so much later or coming back to re-record part of this is we have access to material that we definitely wouldn't have had access to earlier. In fact, uh, I don't believe Trevor Noah had even taken over the Daily Show when we first recorded, but this past week, as of us recording, it was this past week, uh, he had a guest who was talking about how people who are affiliated with this group that I kind of alluded to don't do so by regularly attending religious services. They are turned to this sort of stuff more online with groups they might interact with online. But those who actually read their religious texts and understand them and discuss them with people, especially with people who have devoted their lives to these faiths, are less likely to actually hurt people because they understand that these religions are supposed to be about love and making yourself better and making the world better through your own effort rather than hurting people, which they actually sort of cover at the end without actually directly saying it. And they, the final page, Storm is kind of comforting Cyclops out on the balcony as a- after, you know, Magneto's left and said, you guys can try peace, but if you lose, I'm going to take a turn. And, you know, Professor Xavier is kind of briefly lost faith in the dream of peaceful coexistence between humans and mutants. And Cyclops is just having his own problem. So Storm goes out on the balcony to comfort him. And they're talking about, or Storm says that for just a moment, Cyclops was giving a speech that made himself the teacher and Professor X the pupil. And he replies, labels again, the hell with him. He was in need. I helped him as he would me. That's what it's all about, really. Needing and helping, caring for one another. And Storm says, and from that comes love. Cyclops says, which makes the world go round. And Storm just replies, if only that were so. Mm -hmm. From there, I think we're into the personal stories of how we first came to read this. Why don't you start, Jim? How did you first run across God Loves Man Kills? When I was in graduate school, I, I think I've actually mentioned this a couple of times, I started going to a bookstore that was in the, in the city where I went to graduate school. This was, if I can actually name it by name, the Brookings Book Company in Brookings, South Dakota. And I just, and this was just one of the graphic novels on the shelf that I had heard about. And I was like, oh, I have to check this out. So I picked it up at one point, decided, hey, this looks worth reading. And it's one of those ones where I knew about its significance to continuity, even though it wasn't canon. Well, at the time, I think it had been canon for less than five years. But for a long time, I knew, I knew it hadn't been. But I was like, well, going to have to read this. Yeah, for me, it was that I had heard great things about it in the tie-in to the X2, X-Men United film. And everyone was raving about, you know, online at least, how excited they were that that was the inspiration because it was such a great story. So I kind of had my eye out for it, but I never did pick up a copy. The copy I've got is actually the one on Marvel Digital Unlimited. And the first time I read it was a little over a year ago, when it was covered by Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men on their podcast, which is why Jim and I tried to record this a year ago. I figured, out I'm going to be reading it anyway. Jim and I are going to be discussing it. It was time for us to record for Avengers 4 as it was. So, yeah, asked if we could record it early, and it mostly worked. And turns out old versions of MP3 Skype Recorder, well, yeah, well, they fixed bugs. Let's put it that way. The old one froze up on me a couple of times. But I think from there, it's time to head into the portion of the podcast that is so blatantly stolen from Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, in which we discuss the morals, messages, and meanings. And are there any messages in this book? Uh, I think the short version is yes. I'd have to agree with that. And, of course, the part of it is... Anyone who's been listening to the past, oh, we're probably close to an hour now, has probably heard most of what those morals and meanings are about how, you know, religion can be a good thing, but it also can be perverted by people who don't necessarily have the best intentions for the world and the best 
grasp on their religion. Yeah, and that's by and large what this is. I mean, the fact that we've discussed it so much coming up to it, it says that, you know, this really is about getting the message across. Right? Why else would you tell a story with these characters that's not in continuity and still make a big enough deal out of it to be the graphic novel? It is entertaining, but I think that message of forget the details and just focus on the fact that everybody's human and deserves to be treated with respect and caring, right? That seems to be the bottom line in this. Beyond that, it does give you something that I hadn't even really thought about at the time, but sort of an emphasis on that that I didn't really think about until this recording is that, you know, there's a scene where Magneto is one of the first ones to confront Stryker, and he uses his machine that he's using to control and imprison Professor X to, like, strike Magneto. And the the crowd kind of goes up against Magneto, but the police who are in the crowd hold the crowd back from hurting him. And it's just interesting to me that to see humans defending Magneto, the guy who for so long was like, I'm probably going to have to kill most of these humans or at least subjugate them to make sure that they don't, you know, wipe out mutant kind. Uh, Never really commenting on the fact that, you know, if mutants are indeed the next stage of human evolution, humans will just kind of go the way of the Neanderthal or the Australopithecus or something like that. But that's beside the point. The point being, Magneto, who's been such a danger to humanity in the past, is being defended by humans who you don't necessarily know if these are guys that recognize him as Magneto, the well-known terrorist, or if they just see one man being attacked by 50, 60 people and realizing that's not a fair fight, especially with the frenzy these people are in. Yeah, and Chris Claremont and his creative team have gone a long way to making sure that the police are shown in the positive light here. Mm-hmm. So there's another interpretation of that that may undermine that message, but it's also entirely possible that these officers do recognize Magneto, they know his power levels, and they're keeping the crowd back to protect the crowd. because. You know, they know Magneto could easily handle them on any normal day. So I don't know if that's what they were going for, but that's a possibility as well. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think a lot of this is about, you know, forget this whole us or them and make sure that everyone is on the same page in my religion and focus on the love thy neighbor, which seems to exist in some form in virtually every religion, not just the flavors of Christianity, but everything out there, whether it's Buddhism, Hinduism, Virtually every organized religion says, hey, be nice to each other, okay? Mm-hmm. That just really seems to be the bottom line. And that's what a lot of this focuses on. All right, so from there, we should really talk about why we think it landed at this point in the countdown. I mean, number 21 is a very respectable slot here. Yeah. So we usually look at three factors, the entertainment value, the importance to continuity, and the messages. And I would say that, you know... The importance to continuity isn't huge, but it does have some impact. The entertainment and messages are both there in spades. Mm-hmm. This is a very well-made graphic novel. It is easy to recommend tracking it down in one form or another. And at this point, I'd be willing to just recommend everyone just subscribe to Marvel Digital Unlimited. Mm-hmm. It's basically Netflix for Marvel Comics. It includes this and so many other titles that have made this list. I, I keep thinking I need to get onto that just because the cost of joining or getting Marvel Digital Unlimited for a year is about, at this point, it's between 20 and $30 less per year than I spend on comics per month. So. <laughs> yeah, and the, yeah, the other perk to it is you can catch up on things that you may have missed the first time around that have great word of mouth. Mm-hmm. I mean, for me, that's how I caught up on Fraction and Ajo's Hawkeye. But anyway, that's a topic for another podcast that has already been covered. So did you have any closing thoughts, Jim? No, not really. I don't remember if I had any last time because, well, we lost the recording, but this time I think we're pretty much good. Okay. So, again, I'd like to thank you for agreeing to come back in here last minute, brush up on that graphic novel, and then record this last piece. We've got a complete podcast to put out. For those of you listening along at home, next week we are discussing Secret Invasion, which has been reprinted in the Secret Invasion trade paperback and Secret Invasion hardcover, as well as on Comixology and Marvel Digital Unlimited. We are just looking at the eight issues of Secret Invasion and not all the ancillary tie-ins. Please feel free to rate this and any other shows you listen to on iTunes, on Stitcher, and whatever podcaster you use to listen to them. It really does help the shows get noticed. 
You can also share the link with friends you think may be interested and join us on our Facebook discussion forum. And finally, thank you for listening. Comic books aren't for kids anymore. We've heard the refrain for years in mainstream media, but 30 seconds at the end of a newscast or two paragraphs in a magazine can't provide the behind-the-scenes information or entertainment like one episode of Word Balloon. Welcome to Word Balloon, the comic book conversation show. This is John Suntress. Word Balloon is a one-on-one interview program featuring pop culture conversations with storytellers. People who don't read today's comic books may think the medium is still being written for nine-year-olds, but as film, television, and video game producers can tell you, they couldn't be more wrong. These writers and artists are just as entertaining talking about their process as they are producing the stories they make. Listen to a sample episode and discover why Word Balloon leads the way in pop culture entertainment coverage.